some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. On April 10th, 1834, word spread in New Orleans that a house was on fire at the corner of Royal and Hospital Streets. Neighbors rushed to the scene and a few brave ones even made their way inside. There, they found a woman in the kitchen in chains, her brown skin made darker by bruises. It appeared it was she who set the fire. The sight of this woman was shocking, and yet there had been rumors about this house in New Orleans. Rumors that the slaves inside were treated even more cruelly than others in the slaveholding state of Louisiana. So the townspeople ran through the house, opening one door after another. They finally reached an apartment that had been rumored to serve as a sort of makeshift prison and found seven human beings so badly tortured that, though they were alive, they barely looked like people at all. The victims were carried from the home and taken to the city hall, where they were laid beneath the arches that surrounded the building. The sight of these humans was so unsettling that townspeople demanded justice. Instead, Madame Delphine LaLaurie walked confidently out of her house and got away, enraging residents so much that they destroyed her home and left it in ruins. She never did face proper justice, but word of the case made headlines far beyond New Orleans, reaching even Great Britain and France, and opened people's eyes to just how inhumanely enslaved people were treated. If you've heard bits of the story of Madame LaLaurie, chances are they were in one of two contexts, either in connection with stories about the rebuilt house she once owned being haunted, or in connection with Kathy Bates' portrayal of her in the coven season of American Horror Story. Bonsoir, my pets. Did y'all miss me? Mm. Hush up. I'll rip your lips open and stuff more shit in there. Why? Why are you doing this to us? Because I can. The stories, though, usually aren't quite accurate. That's not a knock. It can be tough to discern reality from legend when a story is 200 years old. Funny thing is, though, that the false stories run the gamut. Some, published in the 1930s at the incident centennial, significantly downplay LaLaurie's cruelty, seeming to argue that her reputation had been unfairly tarnished by a rumor mill run rampant over the previous hundred years. Others went the opposite direction, suggesting that LaLaurie had maimed, tortured, and killed hundreds of enslaved people, that she and her mad scientist husband used them for barbaric medical treatments. Historian Carolyn Morrow-Long exhaustively researched the case for a book she wrote in 2012, and she found that, as often happens, the truth lies somewhere in between. So here's the tale. Long before she was Madame LaLaurie, 
She was a New Orleans native named Delphine McCarty. She was a wealthy white Creole lady of New Orleans who came from a well-known but somewhat rambunctious family. Delphine's parents were well off, a status they reached by buying human beings they then forced to work on their property. Let's face it, it's not as hard to get rich when you have free labor. They were big landowners, big slave owners, and she was kind of untouchable. Now, Louisiana's history is arguably more complicated than average in the United States. It was settled in the early 1700s, first largely by the French. Then for a while, it was under Spanish rule. Then the Spanish quietly sold it to the French again. Then the U.S. bought it in the Louisiana Purchase, which ultimately led to the territory becoming a bona fide state. That happened in 1812. Delphine's story, however, began in 1787. That's when she was born to parents Louis Barthélemy and Marie Jean. Don't make fun of my pronunciation. I am trying here. They were originally from Ireland, but they had come to New Orleans by way of France. So they were totally Frenchified. Marie-Jeanne had been married once before, but her first husband died, which left her a widow. Louis was her second husband, and with him, she had two children. The first was a boy named after his father, and Delphine came second. Delphine had just turned 14 when her parents married her off for the first time. Before you write off the young age of the bride just being a sign of the times, Long says it was actually more than that. She married the first time when she was just barely 14 years old. That was kind of a scandal. She married a Spanish government official named Ramon Lopez de Angelo. It seems like it was kind of a shotgun wedding. Long posits that perhaps Delphine had been pregnant, prompting the quick marriage. She cites some letters in which Delphine's husband worries about saving Delphine's family's reputation. But infant mortality was a nightmare back then. And it seems either Delphine never gave birth or the baby didn't live long after she did. Delphine's husband was a widower and a pretty prominent guy. He actually wasn't supposed to get married without permission from the Spanish King Charles IV, but that didn't come fast enough, so he kind of smooth-talked and efficient into doing it anyway, and then learned he'd pissed off his bosses. But it seems maybe he was having a hard time caring all that much because he hadn't wanted to be shipped to Louisiana to work, but he was anyway. And that grueling trip across the ocean is actually what killed his first wife. When he left Spain, he'd been married to a woman he described as his guide and soulmate. But she got so sick from the trip that she died. So he probably wasn't feeling too deferential when it came to marrying his second wife. Whatever the circumstances of this wedding, he and Delphine were still married when Delphine learned she was pregnant at age 19. It was while she was pregnant that she lost her first husband. He he actually died in a shipwreck off the coast of Havana. At that same time, their one and only daughter was born. Soon after that death, Delphine gave birth to a little girl. It's tough to imagine someone ultimately capable of being so inhumane, of ever doing anything heartwarming. But Delphine actually named that baby after her dead husband's first wife. The little girl was called Borja. So then she married kind of a character, a a Frenchman named Jean Blanc, who was 
a wheelie dealer. He was an attorney. He was a slave trader. He speculated in land. He was an associate of the pirates, Jean-Pierre Lafitte. He was a smuggler. He, he was into all kinds of stuff. She had four children with him, and he was heavily in debt. Then he died. So Delphine was widowed for the second time with five children. The deaths in Delphine's life came swiftly around this time. Her mother died, leaving Delphine and her brother some money and land. And then her father died. And she inherited a whole bunch of money and land. So she was a rich widow. For several years, Delphine raised her five children. Not alone, of course, because she had slaves. When Delphine inherited land and money from her parents, she also inherited human beings. They helped feed her and keep the house and watch the kids and tend to the yard, plus all the other work on the plantation. But eventually, Delphine met someone new. After two failed marriages, Delphine met a man who had sailed from France with dreams of establishing a medical practice in New Orleans. So along comes this young guy. Right off the boat from France. He had graduated from Sorbonne with a degree in medicine. He was from a middle-class family in a little village in France. His father and brother were both doctors. I think she was 38. He had just turned 25. Well, I think she's what we would call a cougar. The new guy off the boat was named Louis Lalaurie. Lalaurie specialized in treating back deformities. Back then, what he did was considered cutting-edge stuff. He would use these intricate contraptions to try and elongate people's spines and set them straight. The treatments could be quite painful, but at the time, they were seen as quite advanced. It so happened that Delphine had a daughter with a back deformity. When writing her book, long-quoted letters that had been found from Lalaurie's father back in France to his son in America. The letters from his father talk about him treating the, the young hunchback lady, Mademoiselle Blanc. The surname Blanc is from Delphine's second husband. Lalaurie's father references Delphine when he writes too, though it's apparent he didn't have a clear vision of how this relationship would unfold. The letters, they're a real treasure trove. Even though we don't know what Louise was writing to them, we know what they were writing to him. And his father is saying, get your act together, marry a rich woman, make your name as a doctor and come home and live in your home village and return to the family. So, of course, Papa is imagining a young girl, <laughs> not, not this widow who, who is almost old enough to be his mother. As far as Papa Lalaurie knew, Delphine was basically a patient's mother. And at first, maybe that's all they were. And so that's probably how they got to know each other. They got to know each other real well. <laughs> she got pregnant. After Delphine had her sixth child, Lalaurie split for five whole months. There's no record of where he went or why he went there. But after that separation, he returned, and he soon became Delphine's third husband. When the couple married, they got a prenup. That wasn't terribly common at the time, at least not in this way. But Lalaurie, the husband, had very little. 
His mother had died not long after he moved to New Orleans. His father's letters describe absolute anguish at losing his wife. And because of that, Dr. Lalaurie had inherited a little bit of land in France, but he signed it over to his father to manage. In the prenup, Delphine stayed in control of her land, her houses, her slaves, everything. He's poor. I don't know if he was handsome or or what, but she went for him. I asked Long if basically he was a boy toy. She corrected my term. She grew up hearing guys like that called gumdrops. But however Delphine saw Lullery, it was pretty clear that the two were an odd pair. It was common at the time for men to be significantly older than their wives. In fact, Delphine's first two husbands were both about double her age. But it was odd for a woman to be older than her groom. And it was soon after this marriage that rumors began circulating about Delphine. So right about then is when trouble begins to start. 1828, she is being called before the court for cruelty to her slaves. There's no court records backing this up. So you might wonder, how the hell can we know what the rumors were in 1828? Well, that's thanks to another set of letters long referenced, which are stored in the historic New Orleans collection. These letters were written by a guy named Jean Bose, who was the manager of a nearby plantation. Delphine and Louis had been married less than a year when Bose wrote a letter that read, quote, Madame Blanc has married a young French doctor. They do not have a happy household. They fight, they separate, and then return to each other, which would make one believe that someday they will abandon each other completely, end quote. He's sending these gossipy newsletters, and he says, well, Madame Blanc has married this young man, and now she's in trouble. So she was investigated several times for cruelty to her slaves, but they never could pin anything on her because, after all, she was Delphine McCarty. 1828 marks the first documentation of rumors about Delphine being especially awful to the people in her home. It's possible the rumors predated that, but documentation has disappeared. It's also possible Delphine had been impossibly cruel for decades, but no one noticed or questioned it. And it is possible, though it feels a bit unlikely, that Delphine didn't start the abuse until after she and Lola remarried. What is known, though, is that Bose wrote about the allegations and then long found what she believes is proof of them. Hidden in an unrelated file, Long found a note written by a lawyer spelling out that Delphine had paid him $300 to represent her in 1828. There weren't many other reasons someone of her status would need to pay a lawyer the equivalent of $9,000 today. But a white woman in New Orleans, especially a white rich woman, was without fail given the benefit of the doubt by the court. Most likely, that $300 completely cleared away any police investigation from the time, even if it didn't do much to stop the rumors. At this point, Delphine and her husband were living on a riverside plantation. But around 1831, a new construction was going up at Royal and Hospital Streets. Delphine set her sights on it and sold some property to make sure she could buy it. She oversaw the rest of its construction. Her husband had very little say in things, which probably extended far beyond where they lived. I think she was probably always cruel and pretty much nuts. And I think as soon as he married her, he thought, 
oh my God, what did I get into? And he started distancing himself from her. I think he maybe knew what she was doing and he knew that eventually this was going to come to light and he was going to get pulled down with her. So he distanced a bit, but only a bit. Mallory wasn't about to give up the lavish lifestyle his new wife afforded him. The couple threw parties and other fashionable affairs attended by the elite. Delphine presented herself as a high-class lady, completely proper. She was polite and ever so kind to the guests who came to dine at her mansion. She was even known to pass off a half-finished glass of wine to one of her enslaved servants and insist that they finish it. She'd hand them the drink and say lovingly, it'll do you good. I mean, surely a woman who would allow a slave to drink her backwash must be a gem of a person, right? Not only that, but she had a coachman named Bastien, whom she apparently favored. He was well-fed and treated kindly, in exchange for which he fed Delphine intel on the others in the house. For example, he apparently ratted to Delphine that two of her daughters had been sneaking the slaves' food on the sly. Delphine put a quick end to that. Bastien was the person most often seen in public with Delphine, so people assumed he was representative of how she treated the people she owned. I think she could be a real charmer. I mean, she she was a very good-looking woman, and she had a double personality. She she could just charm you to death, and, and, and she could be horrible. I've known people like that, you know? I'm sure you have, too. Side note, she's right. I have. Now, the rumors about Delphine's abuse didn't abate in the new house. In fact, according to a book written in 1889 by George Washington Cable, the next high-profile claim came when a neighbor saw a young girl, around age eight, tearing through the mansion's yard with Madame Lalaurie following her, whip in hand. The girl ran through the house and desperately raced up the stairs to flee. Delphine still chasing her, the girl made it to the roof, and she fell with a sickening thud to her death. Descriptions circulated of Delphine carrying the girl's broken body across the property. Police investigated and found several slaves on the property in terrible shape. The authorities probably felt like saviors, rounding up nine slaves and leading them away from this mad woman. But in truth, they didn't save them. According to Cable, these people were simply sold again. And Delphine, being a spiteful and undoubtedly mentally deranged person, reportedly had family members buy them up and sneak them back onto her property in the cover of night. Cable wrote, quote, All Madame Lalaurie ever suffered for this part of her hideous misdeeds was a fine, end quote. I mean, think about this for a second. These nine people had been so mistreated by this woman that even in a world so cruel that people were allowed to own other people, they were taken away from her. Imagine the terror they would have felt being forced to walk back onto that property. No one else knew they had been returned to her. The Lalauris moving into their extravagant new home didn't do much to calm Delphine's relationship with her young husband. Gumdrop, was it? No matter how financially dependent LaLaurie was on his wife, he couldn't have been a total doormat. There are too many letters describing their fights for that to be true. It wasn't long after they had moved to the new mansion that Delphine 
actually took steps to end their relationship. They moved in, and then pretty soon they were fighting so viciously that she says he was abusing her, and she applied for a separation. And he left, went down to rural Plaquemines Parish, but he was back at the mansion on Royal Street on the day of the fire. It's not clear if Lalaurie came back to patch things up or just to grab his grooming kit, but regardless, he was home April 10th, 1834, when the air above hospital and Royal Streets began to fill with soot and smoke. The fire began in the kitchen, but back then, kitchens weren't in the main house where people lived and slept. It was always in a semi-detached or completely detached building. The Lalaurie kitchen was in the latter, a detached building that abutted the main residence at a right angle. As the flames grew taller, the worry became that the fire would spread from that detached building to the main residence, which was filled with expensive furniture and draperies and jewels. Word spread and Delphine's neighbors rushed to help her. At this point in New Orleans history, there was no fire department. A paid department wouldn't appear until 1892. So residents relied on each other in these situations. Neighbors flooded the streets, arriving by the dozens to haul out priceless belongings. In his book, Cable describes how Delphine directed her neighbors. This way, take this. Go now and hurry back if you please. As some headed toward a door she hadn't directed them to, Delphine said, This way, please, gentlemen. That is only the servants' quarters. But some of the neighbors also remembered the rumors about cruelty, and they started to worry about more than just Delphine's furniture. Right across the street lived Judge Canage, and he and some other local men went across the street and said, can we help? And where are the slaves? I, I hear there are slaves back there in, in the service wing. And Madame and Monsieur Lalaurie are saying, no, 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 don't worry about the slaves. Help, help us move the things out of the house in case the fire spreads to the house. The judge asked Dr. Lalaurie, because gumdrop or not, he was the man of the house. And according to newspaper reports, Lalaurie rudely shot back that the judge should mind his own business. Judge Canage and several other prominent citizens of New Orleans said, no, we're, we're going to go see about this. So they broke down the doors. And they went in and they found seven enslaved people. Some of them were in chains. Some of them had on iron collars. They were in terrible condition. Now, before I get more descriptive, a word about slavery in New Orleans. The law in Louisiana said you could buy and sell human beings. The prices varied depending on that person's age and health and ability. As though declaring ownership over someone isn't abusive enough, the law also allowed so-called owners to literally abuse the people they bought. If one of these enslaved people fought back or, hell, even got mouthy, their purported owners could lash them as punishment. But as though aiming to prove that the practice of slaveholding wasn't completely barbaric, owners weren't, by law, allowed to be excessive in their mistreatment. There were limits in what was considered okay. You know, yeah, you could chastise your slaves, but, but you couldn't do this to them. You certainly weren't supposed to murder someone in your forced employ. 
In Louisiana especially, detailed records were kept chronicling who was sold to whom, what that person's skill set supposedly was, how much that person fetched on the market. Hospitals generally kept logs of people coming in for treatment, and those logs indicated the person's status, white, slave, free person of color, and so forth. Deaths were supposed to be documented too. On the surface, maybe this helped people sleep at night, but in truth, the laws and practices were more meant to protect slaves as assets than anything. I mean, think about it. Some of these men and women fetched more than $1,000 at the time. Authorities found it wasteful that someone would buy a person and then mistreat them so badly that they couldn't work anymore. White women were notorious for being especially cruel to their servants. I mean, Long's book details some stuff that is straight-up nightmare fodder. But this abuse usually was hidden from the general public. Sure, sometimes enslaved people would look pretty rough, but neighbors could rationalize that maybe they'd refused to follow orders, or they had run away, or maybe they were even starving themselves, because that's what some understandably did to protest being enslaved. After Long's book came out, she actually found records she wished she could have included documenting inmates housed in New Orleans slave jail at the time. Now, the slave jail was a place where they would pick up runaways or if an owner had a recalcitrant slave and didn't want to punish them himself or herself, he would send them to the slave jail to be punished. So here's a whole bunch of Delphine's slaves turning up in the slave jail. And it didn't say why, but I think they were running away. The same names would come up again and again, meaning those same people tried again and again to escape. When one would run, Delphine would place an ad in the newspaper alerting people so that he or she could be caught and returned. Here's Long reading one of those ads. This was actually for Delphine's coachman, Bastien, the guy she supposedly treated well. $10 reward. Ran away from the subscriber on Sunday morning, the 14th, a Negro man named Bastien. He is about 30 of a stout make, not above five feet three inches, of a very black complexion, speaking English well enough, and a Creole of the country. His face is almost square, his nose flat, and his countenance upon the whole smiling. He is well known in the city as he has driven a dray for many years. Captains of steamers and vessels are cautioned against harboring said slave under the penalties prescribed by the law. That's signed, Madame LaLaurie, Levy Street, Faubourg, Maroney. While the newspapers of the time were littered with ads like these, the abolition movement was definitely growing at the same time. All slavery in the northern states was abolished by 1804. There had been limits put on it elsewhere. In fact, Delphine's first husband, the prominent Spanish official who died in a shipwreck, was the one who reinstated slave sales in 1800 in New Orleans. In 1808, the U.S. Congress outlawed the African slave trade, but by then there were plenty of existing slaves in the U.S., and those slaves had babies of their own, and those children were born into the system. This is the stomach-turning, nitty-gritty stuff. Most of us were not taught in history class, by the way. If your schooling was like mine, you were taught about terrible living conditions and maybe lashings. But when you immerse yourself in the era, when you see the newspaper listings advertising human beings for sale right under ads for winter clothes, 
It feels different. I found a 1941 short film online meant to depict life in Louisiana from about 1830. It begins with a Creole explaining the area to a visiting northerner. Yes, you will find our New Orleans different from your cities up north. We Creoles are different, too. Most of us, you know, still speak only French. In the movie, the Creole and the northerner arrive by ship to the city. Later in the day, we find a crowd gathered at the slave market where, with their physiques exposed to view, slaves await their turn upon the auction block before the assembled planters. Monsieur, 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 voici un jeune homme en bonne santé, fort robuste, excellent travailleur, un charpentier. And now a bid from Planter Dornier. Quatre cents piastres. Four hundred dollars. Cinq cents piastres. Five hundred dollars. $600. With the auction over, Planter Dornier and the auctioneer proceed to the Cabildo, or City Hall, on business. The casual cruelty, even in a film made nearly 80 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, is staggering. Practice even the tiniest bit of empathy, and you realize that these are people who open their eyes in the morning to face every day not just being forced to work for someone else, but being powerless to keep their children from facing the same fate. They saw their kids beaten and sold. They tried fighting back. The biggest slave revolt in American history had actually been near New Orleans. The 1811 slave revolt outside New Orleans is so unknown you probably wouldn't even recognize its name, the German Coast Uprising. This is a documentary from Al Jazeera Plus. Some enslaved people were able to escape. Others were captured and returned to bondage. And 45 people, including Charles Delon, were sentenced to death. Their heads were placed on poles alongside the river levee from New Orleans to Laplace to serve as a gruesome warning and reminder another slave uprising would not be tolerated. This happened in and around New Orleans, and yet slaves in New Orleans were somehow considered to be pretty lucky on the whole. They had a good deal of autonomy. They could kind of come and go as they pleased. A lot of them lived off the the premises of their owners, and they could hire themselves out. They could earn wages just so they paid a percentage of their wages to their owners. And they could buy their freedom if they could save up enough money. This setup allowed some to rationalize a practice that appalled literally millions of other people in this country. When their neighbors were accused of atrocious treatment, they opted to dismiss the allegations as exaggerations. Doing otherwise might have made them question the whole system, and they simply weren't willing to do that. This is why the sight of the slaves found in Delphine's home during the fire was so incredibly shocking. There was no way for Delphine's neighbors to excuse or explain away what she had done to them. After neighbors pushed into the LaLaurie mansion, they found a locked apartment believed to house some of the slaves. They had to break in to reach the people inside. Here's one newspaper account describing what they found. Quote, The most appalling spectacle met their eyes. Seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, were suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. 
Language is powerless and inadequate to give a proper conception of the horror which a scene like this must have inspired. These slaves were the property of the demon in the shape of a woman whom we mentioned at the beginning of this article. They had been confined by her for several months in the situation from which they had thus providentially been rescued and had been merely kept in existence to prolong their sufferings and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict, end quote. If news accounts are accurate, the seven victims found that day were among the crew who had been rescued from the mansion, then later sent back after the investigation sparked by the little girl falling from the roof. The remaining two in that crew had supposedly already died. The seven still alive were carried by the townspeople away from the mansion to the cabildo, or city hall, which was fronted by a porch held up with stately arches. And they laid them out under the porticos, and according to the newspaper accounts of the day, 3,000 people came by and saw them. There was no wiggle room to pretend that the allegations were exaggerated. New Orleans at the time had a few newspapers, and each one had its own political leaning. But they all basically described the same scene. They did differ in some subsequent details. One newspaper reported that bodies had been found buried in Delphine's yard, while a competitor said, nah, that didn't happen. But no one argued that seven humans had been saved from her house or that townspeople streamed by to see the horrifying sight. Judge Canone and others rushed to feed the emaciated victims. It was reported that two of the seven didn't survive the day, and the rest ultimately ended up pensioners of the city. Outraged, the people of New Orleans surrounded Delphine's house. She hid inside with her husband and children. Finally, her coachman, the servant she treated well, came up with a plan. In a nutshell, Bastian's plan was... At cool, I'm going to pull the coach up to the house. You hop in like it's just a normal day and we're going for a little ride. So that's what they did. And it worked. The townspeople were still gathered, but they were confused by this woman just waltzing outside like nothing was wrong. So they were kind of slow to respond. By the time they realized she was fleeing, it was too late. They were pissed. They began absolutely destroying the mansion. They smashed every piece of furniture they could find. They tore down the draperies. They attacked the stone facade. No one was hurt that we know of, but the crowd was described as absolutely frenzied. Several days passed, and a newspaper still reported that the destruction was continuing. It read, quote, At the time of writing this, the fury of the mob remained still unabated and threatens the total demolition of the entire edifice, end quote. The whole place was ruined. In car wreck terms, it was a total loss. Delphine settled some business matters, then traveled to Mobile, Alabama, and from there to New York. In New York City, they're recognized and people are yelling things at them. So then they sail to France. People all over the country seem to know this story. This story got picked up all over the country and in Europe, so everybody knew it. To reach France, she had taken a ship from New York. While aboard, a poet happened to write a letter noting that Delphine was a fellow passenger. Her reputation had apparently preceded her there, too. He knew who she was, and the people on the boat were having nothing to do with her. And I just thought it was... The funniest thing, that he said, she was often seen in tears. 
because the ladies were being mean to her. Isn't it terrible when people aren't nice to you? Delphine lived the rest of her life in France, arguably far too comfortably to consider it justice. Her children suffered because of their relationship with her. Her husband never divorced her, but he did abandon her in France while he apparently lived the rest of his life in Havana. At some point, Delphine had written a son who stayed behind in the States, in which she talked about maybe returning to New Orleans. But the son was insistent that should not happen. In a letter to a friend, he referred to the catastrophe of 1834. The horrifying story surrounding the LaLaurie mansion has stayed intact to this day. The house was rebuilt a few years after it had been destroyed. That's when the originally two-story building was given a third floor that still exists today. Even though the house isn't really the one the LaLaurie's owned anymore, it's still referred to by locals as the Haunted House, a title it's retained as it's passed from one owner to the next. At one point, its 10,000 square feet was divided into low-rent apartments, Another time, it served as an all-girls school. No matter its incarnation, for nearly 200 years, people have reported paranormal activity there. Time and again, reports have surfaced of phantom footsteps and mysterious injuries. Its owners often suffered one way or another too, often financially. But the lore surrounding the house has made it irresistible to some, especially fans of the macabre, like Nicolas Cage, who bought the house in 2007. Cage talked about the house once while a guest on David Letterman's late night show. Uh, Well, look, at that time, I thought I was going to write the great American horror novel. I was inspired by Poe and Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft. So I I had the house because I thought maybe I'd I'd feel something as I was writing, but it it didn't, uh, well, it's no longer with me, so that didn't happen. It seems somebody had bad juju. Cage was forced to sell the mansion in 2009 because he owed the IRS more than $6 million. The home is now owned by a business registered in Texas and is closed to the public. No word on whether the current owner has run into any ghosts. To research this, I read Carolyn Morrow Long's book, which is seriously some of the most meticulously researched nonfiction I've ever read. Special thanks to Long for taking the time to talk with me for this episode. I also read news accounts from the time, plus accounts from decades later and then centuries later. And I read relevant portions of George Washington Cable's 1889 book, Strange True Stories of Louisiana. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 